Today's reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Death is not the end. If you're visiting us today, whether it's uh, you're just on your own and you've been drawn to church, albeit a virtual church this Easter Sunday, or whether you're here as usual, may I also add my welcome to you. Now you may be like someone I spoke to recently regarding a funeral of their family member. The deceased had what you might describe as a sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. They knew, without a shadow of doubt, that they were going to heaven to be with their Lord. But I suspect that the mourner was pleased that uh, his mother drew comfort from that hope, even though he himself probably thought she was mistaken. I wonder whether you're in that position, happy for friends and family to be comforted by religious beliefs of life after death, but really it's a bit like keeping your fingers crossed and hoping for the best. But I wonder whether I could persuade you to keep an open mind this morning, as maybe there is evidence that you weren't aware of for the certainty of your loved one's expectations. Now, what do these people have in common? Lord Mackay of Clashfern, the former Lord Chancellor, Sir John Polkinghorn, former Professor of Astrophysics at Cambridge, C.S. Lewis, the late Professor of English Literature at uh, Cambridge, Professor Francis Collins, one-time lead researcher of the Genome Project, or Professor Daniel Hastings, Professor of Astronautics and Aeronautics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and on the board of NASA, the American Space Agency. Now, what do these guys all have in common? Well, they would all be able to endorse the conclusions of a former Lord Chief Justice of England, Lord Darling, who said of the resurrection of Jesus, in its favour, as a living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story was true. So, I hope that by citing these Christians of eminence, all of whom are used to examining evidence in their different fields, may be encouraged 
not to switch off at this point and think, well, maybe there is something in this after all. I'll hear this poor old cleric out. But of course, you may be thinking that you could cite similar leading figures who take a contrary view, and indeed you could. So let's examine their case, the case of the sceptics. Those who seriously reject the evidence for the resurrection usually start with the view that since miracles of resurrection from the dead do not happen today, that they couldn't have happened then. But that's a rather closed view of the universe. It does rather rule out possibilities in advance of examination. And just suppose there is a God and that he did reveal himself in human form so that we could get an understanding of him. Wouldn't he have had to do a few unusual things for us to notice that someone rather different had appeared? But if you want to rule out the resurrection you have got to explain how the story got off the ground and how the Christian church came into existence so rapidly, maybe not quite as fast as Facebook, who between 2005 and 2010 managed to uh, grow to 400 million members, which was pretty impressive. So this is what the sceptics usually propose. People at the time did not have our scientific knowledge about the world. They were credulous about things they didn't really understand, which they would ascribe to uh, the supernatural. They could easily have fallen prey to reports of a risen Jesus because they believed that resurrections from the dead were possible. Jesus' followers were heartbroken when he was killed And since they believed he was their long-expected Messiah, they may have begun to sense that he was still with them in some way, guiding them, living in their hearts through his spirit. Some may have even felt that they had visions of him speaking to them. And over the decades, these feelings of Jesus, living on spiritually, developed into stories that he had been raised physically. The resurrection accounts in the four Gospels were then devised to bolster this belief. Now you may find that alternative account plausible on first hearing, but I don't think you would if you knew the historical and cultural context It assumes that the gospel accounts of an empty tomb and the eyewitness claims to have seen a risen Jesus were made up many years later, beyond living memory. And yet, the first accounts of the empty tomb and the eyewitness reports come in Paul's writings like the extract we've had written, read to us today. Writing, as he was, just about 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus, let me remind you, for this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. Now, Paul assumes a concrete event taking place on the third day, witnessed on at least 11 different occasions by 550 different people over a six-week period. And he invites these Corinthians to check it out. It is a public event and it is publicly attested. Now we tend to be suspicious of remembered things. Ever since we got pocket calculators, we've lost the ability to do mental arithmetic. Ever since we learned to read and could afford books or computers, we never need to remember anything because we can always get the encyclopedia down or look it up on Google. You don't have to remember. Anthropological studies of non-literate people suggest very good retention of history, passed down the generations accurately, and the ability to distinguish between factual events and fictitious stories. They were perfectly aware of the difference. Now, of course, if this was made up in the latter part of the first century AD, then why have two women as witnesses? A woman's testimony at the time was not valid in court proceedings. The early church must have come under significant pressure at that point. So why not just drop the female witnesses? Well, Christianity is nothing if it's not about truth. But it must also have been widely known, both orally and in initial written accounts, which we don't have anymore, that were in circulation at the time that women were, in fact, the first eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. They could not drop that fact, even if they'd wanted to. Now, the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances go together. If we only had an empty tomb with no eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection, people would have thought that grave robbers had stolen the body though that would have been a rather unique event, given that grave robbers in the first century usually stole linen and spices and left the body since it was of no value to them. And if if there were sightings and no empty tomb, people would have thought hallucination. Hallucinations, though, are individual There are no such things as mass hallucinations. So you would have to conceive of about 550 different people having very similar ones over a very short period of time, sometimes up to 100 miles apart. The two claims, the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances, are together 
in the earliest accounts. And the Christian faith would never have got off the ground unless the tomb was empty, for their opponents would have produced a rotting corpse, and that would have been the end of it. You need both the empty tomb and the sightings to believe in a resurrection from the dead. So there's strong evidence for an empty tomb. No one ever produced the body. And there are hundreds of people claiming to have seen the risen Christ. Tom Wright, the New Testament scholar of some international stature, describes this as historically secure. But couldn't they have wanted Jesus to still be with them and imagined him being so? And then other wishful thinkers went along with their lead. But here the assumption is that we in the 21st century would look at events critically, whereas they would have looked at it credulously and so would have immediately have accepted it. But that is far from the case. To all the dominant worldviews at the time, an individual individual bodily resurrection was almost inconceivable. In the Greco-Roman world, where they thought about the soul or the spirit as being the good thing about us, they downplayed the material and the physical, which were seen as weak. So death for them was liberation from what limits us. So no Greek shot of his body would want it back. The Jews, though, had a more positive view of the physical world. So death was not liberation from the material world, but a tragedy. Many Jews did believe in the general resurrection of the dead at the end of time, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But there was no thought of any individual resurrection before then. For them, the idea of a bodily resurrection was as impossible for their frame of reference as it is for ours, though for different reasons. And yet, these Jews who came to put their trust in Christ did think that. They were convinced he'd risen. When other messianic pretenders were around, and there were many in the first century, They were usually cut down to size, literally. Their followers were left either packing up and going home or they uh, would have to find themselves another Messiah. No one ever thought that their leader had been resurrected. So why did these Christians, unless it had happened... Now these early Christians adopted in just six weeks, that was the time between the resurrection and the ascension, they managed to adopt a completely new worldview, which up till then had been unthinkable. The resurrection of Jesus became so central to their thinking, for them the future had started to happen. It was evidence that his death on the cross as a punishment in our place for our sins, 
worked in the eyes of God the Father. Justice divine was satisfied, as we sing. Now, this wasn't a resuscitated corpse, as Jews envisaged for the end of time, nor simply a spiritual experience, as the Greeks would have had in mind. No, Jesus' resurrected body was a transformed body, a glorified body, tangible, and yet it could pass through walls to get in and out of places. It's the kind of body that believers will share for all eternity. It was unique. No one had thought of it before. Now think about how new ideas come into being. Usually someone comes up with an idea, it gets bounced around in debate, and over time a consensus emerges for the group. But it takes time. That was not the case here. This view of the resurrection blew up immediately after his death. Within six weeks, the apostles were broadcasting it all around Jerusalem. There was no process. There was no development. It arose simply because they'd seen him with their own eyes. Even one or two had come up, even if one or two of them had come up with the idea, they'd have never managed to have convinced the rest of his core followers to take that on board unless there were multiple, plausible, repeated encounters with the risen Jesus. You see, the Jews were fiercely monotheistic. It was blasphemous for them to have any idea of worshipping a human being as God. And yet that is exactly what they came to do. Within weeks of the resurrection, thousands were convinced that the resurrection had demonstrated that Jesus was who he claimed to be, God on earth. Now, what could have facilitated such a change in outlook if it was not the resurrection? Now, it's worth pushing this point, because if we wish to remain sceptical, we have to come up with a plausible alternative. The apostles were serious. They really believed they'd encountered the risen Christ and staked their life on that. If you wish to remain a sceptic, you do have to explain these historical facts. First, the rapid spread of the church. Within 30 years, this little group, following this executed leader of theirs, had converts in the court of the emperor in Rome. You have to explain how their instant belief that their leader had risen from the dead. No one had previously encountered ideas like that. How did they as Jews come to worship Jesus as God? Jews didn't believe in individual resurrection, so what changed their minds? And why retain such views even in the face of death? Those like the apostles, with the exception of John, lost their lives rather than give up their belief that they had seen the risen Christ. 
Now, you don't knowingly die for a lie, do you? To retain your scepticism, you have to come up with a plausible alternative. Can you do so? The resurrection of Jesus is perhaps more of a challenge and perhaps has more going for it than you might have thought of when you just joined us this morning. Now I know you cannot prove it in the lab, it is of course unrepeatable, but like the lawyers, the historians, the scientists and the literary experts have done, you weigh up the evidence and you come to a conclusion based on the probability of that evidence. As we've seen, the Jews of the first century would have found a divine human and a resurrected individual almost impossible to take on board, and yet they did. The way they did was to let the evidence lead them to the truth, and they found the eyewitness accounts and their changed lives, overwhelming evidence. And one last point. Even if you are, at the moment, sceptical, wouldn't you like to believe in the resurrection? Most of you care about justice. Most of you care about alleviating hunger and disease. Most of you care about the environment. The resurrection of Christ was the start and his return will see a new heaven and a new earth in place where there's no injustice, no hunger, no disease, no messed up creation and no death. There is personal benefit in the conclusion that life, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He was a trailblazer. We who follow him join in his promises. The Lord is risen is the universal Easter faith, which affirms the objective historical reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. First, the tomb was empty, and no adequate alternative to the resurrection has ever explained the disappearance of the body. Second, the Lord was seen and the appearances do not fit with what we know of hallucinations. And thirdly, the disciples were changed people. Only the resurrection can account for their transformation from doubt to faith, from cowardice to courage and sorrow to joy. This is evidence And it's the sure basis on which we trust Jesus for his life, for this life and the next life. The Reverend Michael, Professor Michael Green, who'd once been my rector 45 years ago when I was an undergraduate, died just before Easter last year, aged 88. On the day before he died, he rang up from hospital, a good friend of mine, another former student who was still travelling with Michael all over Europe, conducting lectures and debates in universities. Now, Michael told him that he thought he was, quote, 
on the threshold of heaven. But I'm not fearful, rather joyful, because I'm looking forward to the fulfilment of the promises of the resurrection, which I have believed in all my life, based on the objective reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What an encouraging testimony. The Christian faith and putting our trust in Jesus is not, though, just for the brightest and the best. It is for very ordinary people too. May Picknell used to live over the road from our church in Eastrop House when it was owned by the former headmistress of Costello School. May lived downstairs. May was a late adopter to the Christian faith. She was about 70 when she became a Christian. And she enjoyed, she really did enjoy what she called her little church. She died 10 years ago in her 90s in Bournemouth. Hearing she was rather poorly, I went down to see her a month before she died. She was living in a private block of flats and I'd been told the code to get into the building and where to find her flat. I must admit, I thought at first she was dead. There was no reply to my knock, but the door was open, so I went in. Now I'm no medic, but I thought, lying in bed in the middle of the day, that she'd not got long to live. We managed to talk, and we prayed with some effort, and I asked her whether she was ready to die. And her whole persona lit lit up. Oh yes, my dear, I've been ready a long time. What could be better than to be with my Lord and be happy? Amen.